When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And we don't just mean the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go paper-tarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out, the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Go behind the wheel, under the hood, and beyond with Car Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hi, and welcome to Car Stuff. I'm Scott. And I'm Ben. We are, as always, joined by our super producer. Oh, gosh, it's hard to think of a nickname for Noel today because... We're looking at a really rich story with a lot of references. A lot of references. So, man, I don't know. Should we, should we even attempt right now to give him a nickname? Or, or you, you know, here's what happens. Usually, we say we're gonna think about it during the show, and, and we some, never get. To- well, sometimes we do, and sometimes we don't. You know, yeah. so maybe we should. How about case on the case? On the case. On the case. Yeah, that'll tie in somehow. That'll yeah. That we'll we'll run into that. Hey, but how about done? Noel the refrigerator brown. I was thinking the same thing. I was thinking like the fridge because that's that's a cool name <laughs> or the cooler. Uh, what was that? There was a movie. Um, I can't remember who was in it. I know it's William Macy, and I know why. You know why? My wife calls me the cooler when we go to Vegas, <laughs> and uh, and there's other things too. And this is funny. Like it's it's very it's derogatory. I mean, towards me, but she calls me the cooler. And uh, and there's a lot of situations where I realize, like, oh god, everything turned around when I showed up, and it's true. I mean, gambling is just not my thing. Uh-huh. But when I show up at a table, like it, it cools the table, it really does. And here's a weird little tidbit, a All little right. little tiny thing of this. Sure. In that movie, guess what kind of car William Macy drives? What I don't, I, I haven't seen the movie. He drives a '67 Chrysler Newport. No way. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's blue. I think I haven't looked it up in a couple of years because you know just searching for the car and you know parts yeah. and things like that along the way, and also looking up the cooler to remember exactly what it was about when I've been called that many. You were the cooler. Times. I have been the cooler in <laughs> Vegas. Yeah, I, I I literally could probably get a job as a cooler there. Well, just so uh, you know, ladies and gentlemen, uh, the the cooler thing in the film is uh, sort of the ultimate version of the bouncer. Right, the final form, sort of, of yeah. the bouncer. Yeah, sure. Uh, and the idea is like, I'm going to ease the situation down. However, Scott, it sounds like what you are being called in this in this context of gambling is sort of a bad luck charm. Well, that's what he is, really. It's not. It's not so much a bouncer thing, like you said. It's more like he was. If a table was hot, they would send the cooler down to just kind of also play the table. But I think what happened, it, it skews the odds, is what happens really in that case. But mm-hmm. he also. It was it was more like just his presence really caused uh, the table to cool down. It wasn't a hot table anymore, so that the 
the casino was not losing money as fast as they had been, you know, moments before. Sure. And I think the weird thing in that story was like once he fell in love or something, uh, then he, he became, got. yeah, it was like he, he <laughs> no longer was the cooler. It was like his, his whole attitude changed and everything. So it, it was a cool story. It's interesting. I like, uh, William Macy, by the way. Oh, yeah. William Macy's good. You know what? Oh, William um, H. Macy. Right? William A. Oh, hey, get it right. Yeah. Oh, uh, you know, it's weird that we're talking about this because I think the film I was thinking about for some reason, was Roadhouse. Do you remember Roadhouse? Oh, how could I forget Roadhouse with Patrick Swayze? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's what I was thinking. I was thinking of that cooler. Oh, gotcha. Okay. So there, okay. So you're not the bar fight ending cooler. No, no, no. I'm the, uh, show up and, uh, yeah, this is terrible. Show up and, uh, things kind of go down <laughs> from there. Uh, just gambling though. You know, I've never gambled. Really? I, I, well, I, I guess I've had a lottery ticket before. Yeah. That's what? gambling. Does that count? I guess so. It's not uh, pulling the handle on a slot or anything like that, or, or you know, like putting ten bucks down on a roulette table. But oh, it is man. still gambling. That's a that's a gamble. You're you're spending your money hoping to win more money, but you might lose it all, right? Well, okay. Here's the thing, and this is such a de- uh, derailment, but we'll we'll get to our actual show. <laughs> we promise. We promise. Uh, so here's the thing. Sometimes at our office here in Atlanta. Our one of our coworkers will pull uh, people's money together and they'll play the lottery collectively. Yeah, this is when it goes above a hundred million or something. Right, he has a a system that is you know well thought out, but it can't be that great because we've never won. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, well, they've won. Uh, we've won a little bit of stuff. So I'll play the lottery when a bunch of my coworkers are doing it. I'll throw you know five bucks to the cause or whatever. But to me, I'm not doing that to win. I'm not gambling. I am getting insurance, essentially, because although there's – in practical terms, there's no chance that anyone will win. Uh, but I'm paying that $5, Scott, so that if someone wins, I won't be miserable for years. Well, you won't be the only one to show up at, at work on Monday is what you're saying, right? Are you kidding? Would You wouldn't show up if you won? <laughs> I love I, this stuff, man. Well, you know what? I, honestly – I might do it. I might. Yeah, I don't know. I don't, I'm not even really sure. I guess we, we get to do what we love, so why not? And uh, it, it would be interesting. I'd get weird with it. My hours would get weird. I'd be smug. I'd try to buy the entire company. You, know <laughs> you would. I mean? uh, you would. You would uh, definitely tell them what you were. What you will do, right? Right. It would, that's how it would work. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah, the yeah. Conversations with management would change, and uh, <laughs> and we, you know, we'd make a few new things, but. Speaking of fantastic segues. Uh, <laughs> That's a long way to go to get here, isn't it? Yeah, it's a yeah. long way to go. And we're talking about uh, a long story today. This is something that came to us from a listener. It was a long time in the making. And a very patient listener. And we, and we thank him for that. This, yes. is, uh, this is one that we have probably mentioned on a couple of Nuts and Bolts podcasts. It's like, oh, we've really got to get to that. Well, I got a note from uh, this person just before the holidays this year, uh, in 2015. And it was a polite note, you know, and I, I responded again, as I always do, like, it's on the list, Pier- Pearson. Oh, the guy's name is Pearson. Uh-huh. Uh, Pearson H. And uh, I said, it's on the list. And I said, you know what? I've, I've, I've been wanting to do this one for so long. I'm going to put it on a post-it note and I'm going to put that on my desk. And I said, I know that sounds funny, but that's actually a big step in this process is like, it finally, it moves from, the big list, you know, the one that we, we always say, like, well, yeah, we're going to add it to our list, and we truly do have that list. I'm going to move it from that list over onto my desk, and then I'm going to start to really dig into this topic. Right. So I did that, and uh, and here we are today. We've got it for uh, – got it ready. We got it ready mm-hmm. for Pearson. And, uh, boy, Ben, 
I went back into my email and searched for how long Pearson had been asking for this podcast. And I found the first instance oh boy. where he asked for this. And I had to go back to our previous employer, the, the, the email box that we saved when we shifted companies from right. one to another. So back when we were Discovery, mm. <laughs> way oh back in that file, I found something from May of 2013. Whoa, it's yeah. a golden oldie. That's a long time ago. So we're talking almost three years. Pearson has been patiently waiting for this topic. So, uh, so good for you. You know, uh, you know <laughs> that, you. Uh, that you hung in there with us. So we appreciate it. And um, yeah, here I'll just read the note. It says um, here, again, it's from Pearson in um, Richmond, Virginia. Mm-hmm. He says, "I wrote you once before regarding your podcast on antique license plates. I had a beater 1983 pickup with antique tags on it." You were nice enough to give me a pseudonym when you dis- when you discussed it on the podcast. <laughs> I hope, oh boy, I hope we didn't do that today. Um, anyway, the truck is gone and has been replaced by a 1969 International Harvester Scout 800A. It's my project car and it's sucking up more time and money than I care to admit. Uh, but it's got me thinking, though, that International Harvester might be a cool podcast topic. He says, if that's too narrow, perhaps one of the early SUVs in general, like Scout, Land Rover, Bronco, Jeep, etc. Well, along the way, we'll talk about a few of those, too. But we're going to focus on international and, um, I guess, mostly on the Harvester Scout uh, model. I'm sorry, the Scout model, rather. Uh, But we are going to have some tractor history and some, um, oh, boy, there's going to be some refrigeration history. There's going to be uh, rifles mentioned, military devices, a lot of stuff. Um. So he says there's been a lot of articles out there saying that uh, these may be the next hot collectible. Now, this is Pearson saying this in 2013, and I invite listeners to think about this carefully because I, I ever since I read this, and I this is one of those lines that's kind of stuck in my head because every time I go to one of the um, you know the local antique car shops uh-huh. you know, where you can buy the, the restored classics or whatever, right. I'm finding that I'm seeing a lot of... Uh, Broncos and Jeep and, uh, you know, the old Land Rovers and even vehicles. Yeah, yeah. even International Scouts. There's not a whole lot of those, but, um, you know, the Harvester Scouts are around there. Uh Um, More so, I'm seeing a lot of Broncos when I go. Uh, Toyota Land Cruisers, um, you know, seeing just older vehicles that um, he's he's right. It's kind of a a niche market, I guess, for the collector at this Mm -hmm. point. And it's definitely more popular than it was. And I've got some kind of information here along the way to back that up. I could read that now if you'd like. But um, all right. Something I found from Autoblog, and this is also going back to 2013. And I think this is this might be what he was mentioning. Um, the title is "Classic SUVs: The Next Big Thing for Car Collectors." And and you know what would make them think that? What would make them recognize there's going to be a trend for this? Well, well, Haggerty Insurance, who insures a lot of uh, classic cars, uh-huh. uh, has noticed that there was, and this is again three years ago, noticed that there was an uptick in um, not only. Um, in auction prices and things like that, but also the number of SUVs, classic SUVs that were insured by the company. It's growing, it grew up 65, uh, it went up 65% since 2008. So between 2008 and 2013, up 65%. And that's twice the pace of the overall market. So things like Toyota Land Cruiser, there was a, a that was the largest jump to up 202%. With the number of insured vehicles in that in that time frame, wow! Um, through the 1970s, 1980s Jeep models, they went up something like 93 percent in that same time frame. The Ford Bronco and International Scout they jumped up by 86 and 85 uh, percent. Just th- this huge rise in popularity of SUVs in general was noticed by Haggerty early on, and uh, and Pearson caught on to it as well. And um, I think today's uh, you know podcast will tell us 
or will show us rather, uh, that he's not far off. I mean, we, I, I've just noticed this on my own out in the field. So out in the field sounds like I'm, uh, <laughs> sounds like I'm surveying or something, right. but, uh, I have noticed it around town. So it, it is true. And to explore this, we are going to have to start not in 2015, not in 2016 or 2013, but se- a, more than a century ago. <laughs> yeah, we like to start way, way back. Way, right? way well, back. That's the thing with this international brand. And, and this is going to be – it might be a little bit confusing along the way, and we'll try. Um, but, but of course, there's International Harvester. Uh-huh. There's the International Harvester Company, which are, are, are IH and then IHC, respectively. So if we read right. that that acronym, we that's what we mean. Uh, there's also um, a bunch of different brands in the agricultural division that we'll get to. Uh, so we're going to talk about International, Titan, Mogul, mm. McCormick Deering, McCormick itself, mm. Farmall, Fairway, and then another small brand called Electrol, which I think is kind of fascinating, but um, <laughs> plus more. There's going to be more along the way. So it will get a little bit confusing. We'll try to straighten it all out. Hopefully we'll do a good job of it. So, so Ben, yes. I didn't mean to interrupt you. You started yeah. more than a century ago. So let's yes. hear it. Uh, okay, so our scene begins in 18... 18- 31, uh, outside of a bar in Virginia. <laughs> it's a perfect place to start the story. It's called Steele's Tavern. Now, uh, listeners, I'm just going to take a gamble and say that uh, 1831 was before our collective time. Uh, so this is the same year that the University of Alabama is founded. This is the same year that uh, Nat Turner leads a slave rebellion. There's a lot of stuff happening. So it was easy for people to miss this guy, Cyrus Hall McCormick, and his invention, which he displays outside of this bar in Virginia, Steele's Tavern. He uh, displays the first successful horse-drawn reaper. Yeah, it's a mechanical reaper. Mm. And you wouldn't think that's a huge deal, but, of course, in 1831 – it was all, you know, uh, you're you're doing this by hand at that point, uh, you know, right. reaping the fields by hand, and it's With a, a very scythe. very yeah. tiresome process. It's very it takes it takes a long, long time to clear any sizable amount of land, and this mm-hmm. takes care of that. This does it much, much faster. Right, and this uh, so this initial invention is amazing. People outside the bar are going, Cyrus, you're a genius. Uh, how? How did you ever think to invent something that works this well? And he's not done yet, Scott, because later he uh, he improves this and has a self-raking feature added. Yeah, so that first one would cut 10 acres a day, which is as much as five men could do. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's a significant increase in in, uh, in productivity, of course. And later, you know, the self-raking feature that he adds on to it, then, then they can cut 40 acres a day. So uh, this thing, you know, it's 1831, doesn't patent it until three years later, in eight, until 1834. Uh-huh. But this is really the very beginning of the International Harvester uh, um, Empire, I guess, really, yeah. 1831. And and along the way, uh, somewhere about 10 years later, around there, 10 or 12 years later, he meets up with a guy named Jerome Increase Case. And that's a weird name, isn't it? Jerome Increase Case? Yeah. It, it reminds me of Increase Mather. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It's colonies. a strange, strange name. Yeah, not as common anymore. But uh, but that guy, Jerome Increase, uh, uh-huh. he he establishes the Racine Threshing Machine Works in Racine, Wisconsin. And uh, it's a few years later uh, when Cyrus uh, Cyrus Hall McCormick comes back again and, and establishes something called the McCormick Harvesting Machine Company in Chicago, Illinois. So we're up uh-huh. in the, uh, I guess, in the Midwest, but the Northern Midwest, really. Right, and the uh, McCormick Harvesting Company does really well because 
they have a couple things going on. First, they have an amazing product in the Reaper and later inventions. Uh, secondly, they have a very aggressive uh, sales system. So they have pro- they have a, a warranty that is functionally like if it breaks, just bring it back and we'll fix it for you, mm-hmm. essentially. And then they have a network of branches. They help people with credit for purchasing a machine. Uh, they're selling these things like hotcakes. Sure. Yeah. It's a, it's a popular thing because, you know, it, it's so, it, it's such an advancement. It's like, uh, it's, uh, well, it's hard to even put this into to today's terms, I guess. Like, I, I can't even think of a, a modern invention maybe that would be similar that would, like, instantly increase productivity like that. I mean, I guess maybe uh, going from electric typewriter to computer, maybe. That's pretty good. Maybe that's it. Uh, yeah. But even bigger than that, maybe, because it was really, everything was so agricultural focused, not only in the area that he was in, but, but all around, not just the United States, but around the world, really, because right. he is he is marketing this um, worldwide. Because in 1851, McCormick's Mechanical Reaper earned a gold medal at the Royal Exposition at the Crystal Palace in London, England. So, you know, he's entered the European market at this point. So he's, he's an international guy. And, Ben, we're just getting to the point where, you know, I mean, just to put it in context, I mean, we're, we're like, approaching the point where, like, the, the U.S. Civil War begins. Right. So so that's how long ago we're talking. And, and this has been going on for, you know, 30 years at this point, or 25 years or whatever. You know, uh, way back into the 1830s when Cyrus invented that, that Reaper, uh, I doubt that he had in mind that he was going to be receiving gold medals in London uh, for yeah, his invention. Yeah, and, uh, you know, of course, expanding internationally. Right. Yeah. I mean, you dream big, but I don't know if he had quite, you know, dreamed quite that big at that point. It just, it just really took off. So from 1860 to around 1865, the Civil War in the U.S. Uh, is, as, as a consequence of this event, there is a tremendous expansion in mechanization mm-hmm. of agriculture, right? So people want more reapers. They want more threshers, more mowers and, the use of that stuff expands dramatically. Jerome Case, remember? Scott mentioned him just a second ago. Jerome, Jerome Increase. Yeah, Case. Increase. You can't forget that middle name. <laughs> That's the best part. Uh, so, so our buddy Increase takes on three partners in 1863. And he's got this, remember, he's got this crude thresher company uh, out there in Wisconsin because of the availability of water. Uh, but now he's calling uh, his company the J.I. Case and Company. Uh, so uh, a little bit easier to read, you know, a little bit easier off the tongue, I guess, yeah. the J.I. Case Company. And, of course, that'll be shortened to Case later on. But um, in 1869, the J.I. Case and Company, that's kind of strange to read that, I guess, the J.I. Case and Company produces the first steam engine tractor. So this yes. is this is the what they call old number one, which you can it, see at the Smithsonian. Yeah, isn't that crazy? It's it's on display at the Smithsonian That's now. It's so a cool. it's wheel mounted, uh, but horses still had to kind of move this thing 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 around. And really, the only thing it was used for was belt power. So it was driving other machines. Right. It's something that's uh, that's uh, you know you can you can haul it around on your property or even to a neighbor's property or whatever. Sure. But uh, but anything farther than that probably isn't too um, too easy to get to. It's it's a massive machine, and it took. 15 years. This this machine was a little bit ahead of its time, if we're being honest, because it took 15 years before steam engines boomed. Yeah, and they're still calling it a tractor at this point, which I find interesting because right. it's not what we think of as a tractor by any means. This oh. is, a, again, 
not not exactly stationary, but it's not driving itself at this point. Yeah, yeah. So here's <laughs> all these little these little facts along the way. Now we're getting uh, towards the modern era, and I promise we're going to get to the vehicles and all that stuff. You know, the more modern stuff. Oh yeah, that's bit. the best part. But man, this history is interesting because <laughs> weird to think about it. But in 1871, the Great Chicago Fire destroyed mm-hmm. uh, McCormick's M- McCormick's factory in Chicago. Yeah, it destroyed a lot of stuff in it, one of those uh, one of those buildings. Was his factory eighteen seventy one? Now it's hard to imagine. Like you, you lost everything in the the Chicago fire, the right. Great Chicago Fire. Uh, that is, that just seems like it was so so long ago at this point. Uh, it's it's amazing to think about how long this company has been around. Um, so after that factory was destroyed, Case steps in and says, "I'll I'll build machines for you." Because remember, Case is in uh, Racine and up mm-hmm. in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. He says, "I'll offer to build machines for you," but McCormick then refuses. And decides to build a larger facility in southwest Chicago called the McCormick Works. And this place is way bigger than the old place. Mm-hmm. And also, just while we're here, I don't know about you, Scott, but I'm pretty sure that uh, Mrs. O'Leary's cow thing is a myth. You think so? I think so. Yeah? Well, I mean, if you dug into this, do you... Do you uh... I mean, nah. it's just a little too clean, a little too, uh, a little, a little too, too convenient. You think so? I'm, you know what? I bet, um, I bet our friends over at Stuff You Missed in History class have probably done something on I it. I bet they have. You should check out that, uh, that podcast and maybe there's already something on this. Or, I the, will check on it and get yeah. back to everyone. So, uh, look, the McCormick Works is pretty profitable. Yeah. Bigger and better. Mm-hmm. Bigger and better than ever. And so at the same time that McCormick Works is happening, well, instead, like, uh, what about seven years later, 1878, Case ships its first thresher overseas, but instead of London, they go to Paris. Yeah, and you know what? I'm going to go back two years prior to that because mm-hmm. they did something that's uh, kind of little known, I suppose. In 1876, Case built their first self-propelled traction steam engine. And uh, this is kind of weird. It's self-propelled, but horses are still used to steer the engine, which... I, all this is so strange to me. It's like what, it's not, they're not putting it all together yet at this point. Right. And I guess that's the way these these great inventions happen. It's it's incremental. Mm-hmm. But I just don't understand why they didn't see it coming. You know, it seems like you if you're going to create something that is self-propelled, why not make it steerable as well? But I guess horses are still need, needed for that. Well, also think about the tremendous volatility of steam engines at the time. Yeah, that's true. You That's know what true. I mean? Yeah. Like just getting them to go is already... Without exploding? Yeah, is already tremendously impressive. <laughs> yeah, that's true. All right. So uh, well, you added a couple of years later, and you said that he had uh, he was importing or exporting um, machines, right? Right. Yeah. The first thresher that Case ships to uh, Paris at the Paris Exposition, it wins first prize, and then people put it to work on French farms. But just two years later... All right, the guys. This is gonna. This is gonna be something that pops up in this show often. We're gonna talk about name changes, right? Mm, yeah. And so, in 1880, the J.I. Case and Company. You're right. That is difficult to say. That partnership is dissolved because Case was working with three other guys at the time, and in its place arises the J.I. Case Threshing Machine Company. It's a Seems like a little bit, a little bit of a hair-splitting difference, but it, it has implications for the business later because that year, or excuse me, one year after that, 1881, economic warfare begins, and I, I think this is so cool. This is a lot of this is history that a lot of people are not aware of, the Harvester Wars. The Harvester Wars, I like it. I know. Does it, it sounds like 
um, some kind of dark fantasy so, film. So what was happening in the Harvester Wars? All right. So <clears throat> in the Harvester Wars, there was a period of intense competition and bottoming prices. People were racing to the bottom to have, uh, you know, the to sell the most with the lowest price that they could possibly still make a profit on and sometimes even taking a loss which is something that businesses do today. You know, sometimes a um, like printers, of course, are, are probably the best example of this. Mm-hmm. Right? You, you sell a printer at a loss so you can make the money back with the ink. Oh, my gosh. That is so frustrating to me. You, you, you've hit on a hot button point for me because <laughs> I could tell the price of the printer is the same as the price of the ink refill. Right. And so and you can buy a brand new printer with ink in it. For the same price as you can buy the refills, so mm-hmm. uh, it's just it's, it's maddening. A, it's a to racket. Me. It really is maddening. Oh, to me, uh, but yeah. So, so, so they're racing to the bottom. Mm-hmm. This is and this is something that's not sustainable. You have to. You no, have to. You, you have to make a profit. Otherwise, you're not going to be in business. For and really at long. the same time, these. Uh, at the same time, they're expanding. At least McCormick is expanding. Uh, this. This is because this isn't necessarily because of the horse John Reaver at this point. This is because they invented a twine binder. A twine binder. Okay. A twine binder. Yeah. And they had a lot of competitors. Now in okay. that field. When you say twine binder, that reminded me of this kind of like, like list of things that. Uh, international has built along the way. Oh, yeah, and, yeah. and there's, and there's gonna be more added to this, I promise. But for, like, as far as agricultural items, uh-huh. uh, they're reapers, they're tractors, uh, commercial and consumer grade. Right. And then there's also balers and combines and manure spreaders and, uh, you know, milling machines and, uh, you said twine, right? There's a twine baler, twine binder, uh, twine yeah. binder yeah, I guess, and stationary engines and, uh, um, feed grinders and just, there's all kinds of agricultural items and, and, you can go into any uh, you know agricultural um, manufacturer's shop today or showroom maybe and see just a huge variety of things. And International has been doing a lot of those from the very beginning. Yeah, they in, in many cases they invented the equipment. Well, that's true. Yeah, a lot of these a lot of these come from this company. They were a huge powerhouse in the um, agricultural world at that point. Okay, Scott, I, I hate to say it, buddy, but we are spending a lot of time on tractors, and I don't want I don't want this to be one of those podcasts where you and I get to the very end and say, oh, also, there's the International Scout, because no. that's like my favorite part of you the know, show. And we never intended to talk about tractors as long as we already have, but you know, there's there's actually some fascinating stuff it's just here. It's so, so interesting. Yeah, what do you say we skip through the, oh, you know what, there's two, there's two things. We're going to okay. skip through this timeline a little faster now from this All point right, on, agreed. but but... There was something that you mentioned just a moment ago to me that you said you absolutely wanted to cover, and that was a uh, the Jerome Case freakout. Yes, yes, uh, that is my I, that's my term for it. Okay, the Jerome Case freakout. R- really quickly, so you know how we talked about uh, Henry Ford in past podcasts, how crazy he was, yeah. and how he actually tore apart one of his own cars. Yeah, he right? lost his mind when they uh, when they wanted to change the Model T. Right, right. Uh, so Jerome Case also has some eccentricities. Uh, he will uh, go to people's farms, make a personal visit to someone's farm if a, if a case thresher or steam engine is not performing, and then he will repair it himself. And this is tremendously impressive to people when he goes to, uh, when he goes to this Minnesota farm and says, I'm here, I'm like the owner of this company, but... I want to repair this one machine because my name is on it. And when he can't repair it, he loses his mind. He throw he soaks the thing with kerosene 
and sets it on fire and is saying, like, I am disgusted that this ever made it out of my factory and leaves. What? The next day, <laughs> these uh, befuddled farmers receive a new case thresher like that, and it works perfectly. Well, hopefully told them before he left the farm that he's going to ship another one. I mean, but but holy cow, he, <laughs> hope he burned down their machine, and, and yes. wow, that's a, what a temper on that guy. Huh? I know, I know, that's just... I just that's what I call the drone case freakout, and I just wanted to I just wanted to establish that. You know how many times in this last week I've wanted to soak something with kerosene and burn it because uh, I, I would have moments like this all the time if I could. If I could get away with it, I would. <laughs> I hear you mumbling uh, sometimes during the meetings. Uh, sometimes, sometimes I want to soak that laptop with kerosene <laughs> and just walk out. I feel you, man. Yeah. I feel you. That's why they don't let us have kerosene in the office. Yeah, that's probably why. They're, that's why we have that rule. That's, that's like why. that's like rule number three of this uh, this building. Right? Yeah, no it kerosene. sounded weird. Yeah, sounded strange, weird. but now now it makes sense. So it let's goes let's back to eighteen seventy. <laughs> goes back to eighteen seventy. Uh, let, let's go. Um, let's go forward to the future. All right. Where do you want to go? I mean, we can step through it, I guess, because there's a few things here that are kind of uh, standout events for me. And, okay. and really, if we do that, we then get on to some of these more interesting to us right. um, automobiles and things like that. Yeah, maybe maybe that's uh, that's where we go. How about that? Deal. Okay. All right. So, oh, and there's some other side stories along the way there's that I want so to tell. Many. Yeah, so yeah. many of these. This is a okay. good it's a good story. This whole thing. Mm-hmm. All right. So in um, I think it's 1892. Case built the first gasoline tractor called the Patterson Tractor. It was not successful, and they didn't build another gas tractor all the way until 1911. So they put this thing on hold uh, from 1892 until 1911 when they thought there was a market for it. So they actually had it just kind of in the uh, in the in the I guess in the storage area, right, waiting around for that board. to happen because they're still messing around with steam at this point. They're still building steam tractors or steam engines, rather. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, and then here in 1902, this is kind of a big one, and I think what we should hit on this one. In 1902, the International Harvester Company is founded from the Deering Harvester Company, Plano Manufacturing Company, the Champion Line, and Milwaukee Harvester Company on J- on July 28th of 1902. So this is really the, the birth of the International Harvester Company in 1902 from all those other companies that uh, they absorbed, I guess. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. 
Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And they do it with the help of a fellow named J.P. Morgan. Yeah, J.P. Morgan. And that's a name we still hear today, right? right. It's, a, it's an investing firm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we uh, we were just talking about a, a recent movie that has J.P. Morgan in it, right? Oh, yeah, The Big Short? Is yeah, The it? Big Short, yeah. It's, as uh, the, the bank. Uh, uh, yep. Not as, the individual. Well, yeah, that's right. <laughs> at, the, at that point. But this is actually the guy. This is the this is the uh, the founder of the company. The eponymous. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So... Um, so they're integrated. They, yeah, they, they, well, they finance, they arranged and financed this mm-hmm. whole, this whole corporation, mm-hmm. the, the very beginnings of International Harvester Company. And, uh, if we go forward again, we're again, we're just stepping through this whole list sure, here. Sure. So, um, you know, th- this thing is growing along the way year by year, getting bigger and bigger. And after about 10 years, we, you know, remember we said they put that tractor, uh, kind of on the back burner. Yeah. In 1911, they released the first gasoline tractor called the 3060, um, in 1911. And then eight years later, they came out with something called the commercial PTO, the power takeoff. It was never around until um, 1919, mm-hmm. and International Harvester was the first company to develop that. And also, at this point, around 20% of their branches are outside of the U.S. They are a um, what's the word? a leviathan. Yeah, they're giant. gigantic. Uh, just enormous in size. They're a huge international company. Um, by 1923, there's mm-hmm. a guy named Bert Benjamin. Uh, who built the first successful row crop tractor, which was called the Farmall. Now, Farmall is another brand name that we hear because it, it eventually uh-huh. became its own brand name. That was just a model at that point. So um, it, I think they called it the Farmall Regular at that point. It's, yeah. But it, it wasn't It wasn't its own brand. It was just a model at that point. So, so later it becomes that. Right. And the Farmall has a couple of things that put its streets ahead of other tractors. So it's got a lighter design. Its power-to-weight ratio is superior. It's got a narrow front with one wheel for guiding, right? Mm-hmm. And it has precision steering. Mm-hmm. So th- these this agglomeration of more sophisticated qualities makes it just a better tractor design. Yeah, early 1920s. So, you know, these things that you know, sound uh, old to us. I mean, it looks like an old tractor design that's brand new to them. This is uh, this is uh, cutting edge at this point. And I just want to say there was another war at this time. The tractor price wars. Well, yeah. Oh, in addition to World War One. In addition, and, yeah. yeah, yeah. We're at the time in between, I guess, right? So, so there's World War One, then there's the tractor wars, and then there's World War Two. So, what's next? <laughs> All right. <laughs> I mean, I hate to put it that way, but that's what's going on, right? Uh-huh. So, so You're in right. the in that time between World War One and World War Two, 
1936, and this isn't a huge deal, but Harvester Red, number 50, was adopted for all international harvester tractors. Now, we've talked about race cars and, you know, how certain countries have different colors for the uh-huh. racing vehicles, and that signifies that. Well, uh, kind of like John Deere with their green and yellow paint scheme, International Harvester has Harvester Red, number 50. And then if you want to step way far ahead, so we're getting closer to the modern day, which I bet a lot of people are saying thank you. Um, In 1963, Case had 125 distributorships and subsidiaries in the United Kingdom, France, South Africa, Brazil, and -hmm. Australia with 15 licensees in other countries. So, again, 20% of all U.S. production is shipped overseas by 1963. So this company... Um, we're now what? That's like 130 years into the history of the company, though. At that right. point, in 18 or 1963, that's a long, long time. But man, have they grown! This is a huge, huge company. Is it so? It's so weird that this company could be so prolific and so widespread, and often so little known. Yeah, that's true. You know, you know what? And you know what? I found one more quick little note yeah, on yeah, the yeah. paint color, which I thought was interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, we said it was 1936 when they had the uh, the Harvester Red. In 1983, Case had to change the color of their 94 series tractors to black and white, which was a, an unheard of move for them. Weird. Uh, cause, you know, they had the standard color. Uh, the government regulations banned lead paint and all red and yellow paint happened to contain lead. Oh. So they were unable to use their company colors on these vehicles at this point. So they had to switch over to black and white then. All right, Ben. So we're, we're jumping all over the place in the timeline yeah. here. So, I mean, we said we wanted to speed it up. So here's, here's what we'll do. I'm going to read just a, a brief bit of information here that hopefully will just kind of encapsulate this whole thing. The summary. Right? So, okay. so again, going back to 1902, and I'm not going to go through any more history really, but in 1902, remember JP Morgan merged the McCormick Harvesting Machine Company and the Deering Harvester Company uh-huh. along with three smaller, smaller agricultural equipment firms to form what is known as International Harvester. In 1985, International Harvester then sold off almost all of its agricultural division to a company called Tenneco Incorporated, um, who then merged it into its subsidiary, which was J.I. Case. And under the Case IH brand, um, following this uh, this term of, you know, this agreement that International Harvester had put into place there uh-huh. uh, with, with Tenneco, they said that the International Harvester uh, would be, the brand name, I guess, would be renamed Navistar International Corporation, and that happened in 1986. I'm dizzy from all the names. Well, you know, honestly, Ben, it's so confusing, and we tried to get through that tractor stuff as fast as possible, and believe me, that is the (laughs) fast version of it. And I know it's hard to believe, but, you know, we've got a lot of listeners that write in and want to hear about some of that agricultural stuff. And I know that, um, well, I know that Pearson wanted to focus on the uh, the vehicles, the international Mm -hmm. scout vehicles, Mm -hmm. and I think we can get to that at this point, finally. Finally. Yeah, finally. There's a lot to get through, (laughs) and some other side stories along the way, but what... So we have to go to 1959, right. uh, where the Scout 80 model was released. That's the that's the first uh, International Scout model. Yeah. So International Harvester was building trucks and pickups and stuff uh, in, since 1907. This is not their first rodeo. Yes. But they were very very different things. So 53, they have a truck based people carrier called the Travel All. Right. Yeah. We talked about that. Yep. Uh, but the Scout itself, the idea comes in 1959 and. From 1959 to, or 19, I guess it comes out in 1960, right? 1960 model year. Yes, that's right. So 1960 to 1965, they've got the original Scout 80. This is like the predecessor of many SUVs that you would see today. Yeah, that's strange, isn't it? Like they didn't call it an SUV at that Mm -hmm. point, but uh, when you see them on auctions today, like the Barrett Jackson auctions or whatever, they'll call it. 
um, an early SUV, even though it wasn't really termed that at that at that point. It just wasn't a known term. They built it to be a Jeep killer. Yes. They built it to uh, to be competition for the very popular Jeep. Yeah, the, uh, the, C, the, the CJ in particular, right. which was the civilian version of the Willys Jeep, uh, that it was kind of the carryover, I guess, from the, the military World War II Jeep that they used. And one thing that's really cool about the Scout 80 is that originally it had a folding windshield. Yeah, that that's, the windshield would fold. Yeah, down. yeah, that's really cool. There's a lot of really interesting stuff about these vehicles. Now, mm-hmm. um, one thing that I, I learned on a recent auction, I was watching a Barrett Jackson auction, and um, I just had it on while I was doing something else. You know, I think a lot of people do that. And one of the vehicles to come across the line was an International Scout. And I don't recall exactly what year it was or anything. It was a copper color one. One thing that they mentioned was that um, it had all flat glass. Every piece of glass in the thing was yeah. flat. And that was because of manufacturing. It was easy to manufacture that way. It was a very um, cost-effective way to do it and easy to replace and, you know, all that. Um, so little things like that along the way will pop up here about these about these vehicles. But you want to hear just kind of an interesting story about the chief designer of this whole thing? Like oh, how, yeah, yeah. Like how the whole thing, um, I guess, how, how it all came to be. Because uh, within International, they were in, International Harvester, uh they kind of had the idea that they were going to do this because they, again, as you said, they had been building these light-duty trucks from 1907 all the way through. Mm-hmm. Well, they continued through through what 1975 or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, very different vehicles from the the Scout models, but um, around this time, they said, "Well, we need something that's going to compete with the Jeep. We need something that uh, you know, Ford's. Well, I think Ford later came out with the Bronco. It was much later, but um, that type of vehicle. Uh, they didn't know if it was going to sell or not because there wasn't really a market at the time." For a four-wheel drive recreational vehicle, and that was yeah. the that was the whole idea behind the Jeep. And they thought, well, how are we going to have our own spin on this? So the chief designer of this whole thing, uh, the guy that was tasked with designing this whole this whole project, I guess, out of nothing really, uh-huh. his name was Ted Ornas, spelled O R N A S. And he knew that this was an unknown market. You know, it was a kind of a risk at the time for them to do something like this. And the original design was very. Very flat, very square, had no body contours at all. Mm-hmm. Of course, the flat glass plays into that too. But can you imagine? I mean, looking back at, at the at the Scout eighty, yeah, that to me looks very square. But uh-huh. it was even more so than that at, at this point. And you know, when the when the um, the higher ups, I guess, the program uh, directors or whoever, you know, above the chief designer looked at this, they decided, I don't know if this is really something we want to jump into. It doesn't look like a great design. They weren't thrilled with it, right? And, yeah, and they the, weren't sold. And the program. Almost died. It never. It almost never happened because of that original design. So uh, Ted goes back to the drawing board. Literally, I think it was like a kitchen table design that he he came up with. You know, one night just kind of to save the program. He said, "I got to do something because this whole thing is going to go away, and I really believe in it." So uh-huh. um, he he um, literally on his on his kitchen table he sketches out a a brand new design that's uh, similar to that one, but it has more contour to it. It's more uh, it's more detailed, I suppose, mm-hmm. um, and. Shows it to the uh, the company execs, the the top guys, and they all said, you know what, I like where you're going, where you're going with this, and actually we're gonna uh, we're gonna revive this program based on this new design. So they they kept it, and um, the, the new design was was called. This is kind of strange. This this called for uh, in order to save save cost, they were going to have Goodyear build a plastic body. Yeah, the plastic body. Can we talk a little bit about that? Yeah, let's talk about That's it. It's so weird to me. Yeah, and, and the Goodyear would do it. Now, the reason that Goodyear was chosen to do this is because they could do uh, these massive uh, you know, panels that were required for this vehicle. 
in plastic, and plastic was relatively new at the time. It was uh, it was something carryover from World War II. Right, yeah. Goodyear was one of the only companies that had this manufacturing capability, and it was directly because they had um, they had really focused on producing plastic parts for the Allies during World War II, uh, and they had formed a large plastic engineering group specifically for that purpose. So, in 1959... You know, Goodyear is working on this model stuff and looked at their their cost. Like, what's the cost of making this plastic stuff? Yeah, yep. And uh, and they did. And finally, you know how it works, right? Yeah. I mean, they they come in with an initial bid, and, it, and then it creeps up a little bit more. And if you want to do that, it's going to be a little bit more expensive. And uh, the cost, the thing, kind of went away. Did they? I don't know if they they came to their senses and decided that this is going to be an off road recreational vehicle. We made it need to be a little more tough. Uh, than, yeah. than a plastic vehicle. I don't know exactly. I don't know exactly what the deciding factor was to go away from the Goodyear product, but they decided that they were going to actually stamp this thing out in steel. It was going to be a steel body, and uh, and they went with that, even though the cost was going to be more. Uh, but maybe it had kind of leveled out a bit with the plastic body design. Right. It's very expensive to do to do something like that, and I just don't know exactly the the the, the one factor that switched their mind. Uh, but they did end up with a steel body. And so this thing went through, uh, the whole project from start to finish was really, really fast. I mean, the development time was really, really quick, right? Right, yeah. Uh, well, how how quick was it? 24 months, which is unbelievably impressive. Yeah, very, and uh, remember, 1959, now 24 uh-huh. months, that's a super fast uh, push through. So they had a clay model by July of 1959, and uh, I think it was approximately November of 1959 when they released this this vehicle. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. As a 1960 model year, yeah, and people loved it. Yes, the, this this was it's it's difficult to it's difficult to really convey the popularity above this. We can talk about some of the packages they did, like the the um, very first special package they had on the Scout 80 was the red carpet series. Oh, the red carpet series, yeah. very nice, uh, very aptly named. Huh? Oh yeah, and it was to celebrate. Uh, Selling one hundred thousand Scout eighties. Nice. So they're uh, they're very very popular. Mm-hmm. Um, people obviously, you know, we said it was an uh, kind of an untested market at this point. Other than right. other than that CJ, which really wasn't the exact same thing. I mean, this is a, this yeah, is a I don't li- think so. It's a little different. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not dramatically different, but it's just enough different that they uh, they were able to carve out their own. Uh, you know, their own market, I suppose. And they, you know, they're continually innovating. So the iconic Scout 80, by 1965, it's it's pretty much iconic, is replaced by the Scout 800. Yes. Now that is, uh, okay, there's there's a couple of models here. Uh, it's basically the same design. There's a few upgrades, electric wipers, uh, newer engines, things like that. Better heating system. Yeah, and there's there's two models here, actually, within uh-huh. the 800 model year, or model, model line, I guess, maybe. Yeah. Uh, there's the 800A and the 800B, and I believe... Uh, Pearson said that he had an 800A, so that was somewhere between 1968 and 1970. Mm-hmm. Um, the 800B was between 1970 and 1971, and then that gave way to the Scout 810 in 1971. And here's kind of an interesting note. Uh, in 1971, those Scout 810 models, and I think there was only one year that those were produced, some of those early uh, Scout 2s, which is the next um, model year, which also our next vehicle, I guess, that uh-huh. debuted in 71, uh, they contain Scout 810 badging in the glove box. So kind of a carryover thing that happened in production. And then um, later in 1971, Scout 2 came out uh, from 1971 till 1980. And um, this was, uh, well, this one is a little bit different. This one, uh, standard production models had uh, removable soft or hard tops. They had a 100-inch wheelbase. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just an, 
along the way, they, they make these small changes, but stuff that people are asking for. Right. Yeah. They're pretty responsive to their customer base. Some of the, I guess you could say some of the DNA from the old days of horse-drawn reapers and threshing machines still carries on. So they are listening to what their customers want and they're continually approving. I, I gotta ask you, um, just personal opinion out of the ones we've discussed so far. Okay. Which, which do you like the most? Oh, we're through the Scout 2? I, I like the original. I like the, uh, I like the Scout 80 and I also like the Scout 800s, I guess. So anything prior to 1971, I think. <laughs> what about you? I, you know, I'm really, I'm, I'm really interested in the International Scout 2, man, because the, especially, you know, listeners who have checked out some of our earlier podcasts, uh, you know that we're big fans aesthetically of wood paneled cars. Mm-hmm. And so I, I associate that, to me, that feels very 70s, you know, and maybe that's why I keep Going back to the Scout Two as as my my favorite could be yeah I mean that shape I can see that uh, that working as a wood panel uh, a fake wood panel side oh, or something let me wait let me amend that I'm sorry uh, I should say my favorite car to realistically drive because that Jungle Safari trailer is is probably the uh you know the that, white the white whale for that's me. the one huh oh that man, is can that's you the one how that would be cool that is so impractical. <laughs> Yes, it is. <laughs> All right. So, so where are we in the timeline here? I think we're just at the Scout 2, right? Right, right. We're just at the Scout 2. Well, okay. The Scout 2 was produced from 1971 to 1980. And, and there's only seven total models here, but there are also a number of special editions and that we'll variations. get to. Yeah, yeah. We're on to what, like the fourth or fifth one at this point. But, um, within the Scout 2, uh, um, line, I guess, there was also the Scout 2 Terra, which was built from 1976 to 1980. Right. And this was kind of like the light pickup truck version of the, uh, of the Scout 2. Mm-hmm. And had a longer wheelbase. This one was stretched another 18 inches. Uh, so it's a lot longer than the standard Scout 2 model. Right. And it also has a fiberglass top. Yeah. I think, oh, I think the one you're talking about is the Scout 2 Traveler. Oh, yeah. Well, there's okay. the Terra and then and the there's Traveler. Traveler. Yes. Okay. So, uh, the, they, they both had, some form of fiberglass top. Oh, okay, got it. Okay. But they were, but they were different. Um, and I think there was a hatchback like lift gate on the Traveler. You're right. So the Terra was the pickup truck version. The Traveler was more like the more like uh, a wagon. Yeah, like the SUV looking yeah. version, yeah. right? And um, the, you know the fiberglass hardtop that you mentioned. There was a third row of seats, which was not all that common, I guess, in that type of vehicle at that no. point. Because think about what it's competing with around this time, around you know the mid '70s, early '80s. Um, it's competing with the well, the cars I've read before, the the Ford Bronco, um, the Jeep, the uh, what's another one, the the Land Rover, I guess. Yeah, you know, the Land Rover. You know those those boxy SUV esque uh-huh. vehicles. You can't call them SUVs even at that point. But <laughs> um, so that's that's kind of its competition. And then in 1977, uh, between 1977 and 1979, there was another model. Uh, so again, within the Scout Two line, mm-hmm. it was called the Super Scout Two. The soft top safari too. Yeah, the fabric. Oh, so it also had fabric doors too, right? And yeah. a roll bar. Um, you know, soft top as you mentioned. Uh-huh. Um, I think that uh, there was also um, an S an SS version, if you want to call it that. Right. Um, it stood for Super Scout instead of Super Sport in this case. And they were, uh, and these were really popular in off road racing during the seventies. Yeah, in fact, they had some uh, national or international championships, I believe, right mm-hmm. in the on the off road racing circuit. Uh, so it did very, very well. They were, uh, they were well liked by the, the, uh, people that, that did that kind of thing at that, it, during that era. 
So um, special packages. Special packages. Let's talk special packages. Yes. All right. Uh, as as you said earlier, Scott, there aren't uh, there aren't exactly a wealth of different model lines, but there are a wealth of variations and modifications and special packages. So there's the Shawnee Scout, which is a, a it's like a feature package, and it's produced by someone else. Well, this is interesting because this is probably the uh, I, I guess. Uh, this is the most rare of all international scouts. Oh, by far. Yeah. You know, you know how many, Ben, were produced, right? Right. Yeah. Three. Three, Three vehicles produced of this. One, the, one the, for you, one for me, one for Noel. <laughs> that'll work out perfect, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. They're not tucked away somewhere in a museum, right? But oh, uh, yeah, there are only yeah. three Shawnee scouts produced ever. Um, now the difference with these things was they had, you know, a lot of trim features and things like that too, yeah. right? But, uh, mainly it was built by dressing up a black SS2. So again, that, uh, uh, what did we say? It was Super Scout. Super Scout. That's right. Super Scout Not 2. Super Sport. Uh, with special tomahawk and feather decals, mm-hmm. special seats. Whatever that means. A, a black Targa style top, a hard tonneau, uh, bed cover, and of course, a Hearst shifter. Right. All right. So that's kind of cool, but it's not anything like, you know, it's not like a complete overhaul of the vehicle or anything. It's yeah. mainly an appearance package. I mean, I know there's the the, sh- the Hearst shifter and there's some other dress-up type items, but um, it's really not like, you know, this is like the, the only one, the V10 engine or something. Oh, and I'm going to drop a uh, drop a reference here that maybe will come up later in the podcast. Uh, the Fate of Hearst Performance. Do you remember that, Scott? The fate of Hearst Performance. They were eventually bought by Sunbeam Products, and Sunbeam makes small appliances. Okay. So, so should, just, we, should we take it right now? Should we do it? Because Let's let it sit for just a little bit. Okay. You want to talk about some more special packages? I, I do. Let's finish the special packages, okay. and then we'll get to – and please don't tune out at this point because there, there's something really fascinating going on with appliances. Yeah. And – it's, it's like a, your favorite part. It's a theme that is carried throughout the past seven or eight years with us. But, uh-huh. but I finally think I have a good handle on the whole thing. And, and maybe this is, maybe today, Ben, is the, is the explanation that will make sense to both you and I why auto manufacturers also built home appliances. You've been digging into this one. Yeah. I, I, I have. Wait, I was excited when you told me about this offer. And it goes other directions too. So there's more to it than that. So hopefully you'll hang around for that. So let's jump right back in with the uh, with the selective edition Scout Two. Mm, uh-huh. Uh huh. Uh, nineteen seventy eight to nineteen seventy nine. Uh, they had some gold accent stripes. This was all about gold. Yeah. Gold spoke wheels. Right. Uh, they had a sports <laughs> steering wheel, Goodyear uh, Tracker ATs, uh, black grill insert, and then they had other options. You could get um, you could get upgrades on the seats, the interior. Cruise control radios. You had a uh, couple of options for your powertrain as well. Yeah, different colors you could get with this thing. You know, radios and stuff like that. So again, that's a lot of appearance type uh, type upgrades. Yeah, it's you know, cosmetic it's, stuff. Yeah, it's except most, for the powertrain. Exactly right. Yeah. So then uh, later in the 1970s, there was the Spirit of '76 and the Patriot Special Editions. And the Spirit of '76 was, of course, the U.S. Bicentennial Edition. Right. I thought and, this was cool. Yeah, this is kind of cool. It's uh, it has a special blue soft top. Uh, blue and red side applique, which is only available on the Scout 2. Mm-hmm. And then the Spirit also had a, uh, a blue interior, a racing type steering wheel, and 17 inch chrome alloy, or chrome rally wheels, rather. Um, and I think that, you know, it's a low production number, not as low as the Shawnee Scout. Yeah, more than three, but here's the thing. Although we know it's rare, we have no idea how many were created. Yeah, I mean, the ballpark, though. 
is right around uh, just under 400. Right. That's right. that's just a guess, I suppose. And that's that's based on uh, the number of line tickets that were given out for this. Right, because some of the Patriots were built without being designated a line ticket code. And that and that line ticket is really important. And, and you know, it sounds like a, kind of an inconsequential thing, but the line ticket is what designated, you know, what would go on that vehicle, how it was to be built. Right. And, you know, a certain code number, like uh, 16928 indicated a deluxe interior. Um, 16872 indicated a blue interior color. Things like that, right? So yeah. if you had this line ticket that had all these codes on it, that, that you know, they're factory codes, a code, I, I believe that it was attached to the underside of the hood as well on the vehicle, but you, you were also handed one when you bought one brand new. It was, you know, part of the sale. Mm-hmm. So there's one that stays with the vehicle, one that you've got kind of for your own personal records. And people covet these items because oh, yeah. if you've got the line ticket code for your vehicle, you can bring it right back to original based on everything that came from the factory, mm-hmm. everything that came from the factory. Uh, so, so it's very important for a collector to have something like this. It's, it's, I guess, and I don't know if it's quite as important, but think about like numbers matching cars, you know, where the, you know, the chassis lines up with the, right. uh, the you know, the, the, the number for the engine lines up with the number for the body codes and all that. So, um, it's, it's really important for international harvester owners to have, uh, you know, these, uh, what do you call it? The line ticket? Yeah, line yeah, ticket. The line ticket. Mm-hmm. Because it gives not just the designation for cosmetic stuff like color codes, but also for, you know, powertrain. Well, imagine if you had one that was like, let's say it was brown. You know, at this point, and uh-huh. you look back at your line ticket, and you realize, wait a minute, this one had the, uh, you know, this applique on the side. Oh, I've got a, uh, I've got a Patriot model here that has been painted along the way. Yeah, uh, it yeah. could be something that's, you know, valuable to you in that way that you could restore it back to original, and it would be, uh, you know, authentic. It'd be real. So, yeah, so this is important, and this is a way to kind of gauge the the history, the original state of your vehicle. In this case, your Scout. Here's one that I think probably has my my favorite name. You think so? It's just such it's so weird, man. It is kind of weird. You're talking about the Midas edition. Yeah, 1977 to 1980, um International Harvester gets with an outfit called Midas Van Conversion Company. And if you follow us on Twitter, which we're more than welcome to do, we are Car Stuff HSW and uh every follow gets us a little bit further away from being fired. As I like to say, <laughs> <laughs> that's always good. Always good. Always good. Uh, but if you check us out on Twitter, we were lucky enough to have our listener Ryan write into us uh, with a um, with a link to a documentary called Vannon, and it's about the van lifestyle that van enthusiasts have and their conversions and stuff. Custom vans. Custom vans, which are. So cool sometimes and then just so tacky other times. But by God, man. I love them. Yeah, there's still something really cool about vans, isn't there? So the Midas edition has some of this this van inspiration, uh, the the most 70s stuff you can imagine. You know, it's got the swivel bucket seats. It's got shag carpet, of, of course. Of course it's got shag carpet. <laughs> of course it does. It has a, a color-keyed interior. It has door panels and headliner and, and grill guards and sunroofs. Oh, dual sunroofs. Yeah. Which is kind of cool. Well, you don't want to have to share a sunroof with well, you know, a peasant. Well, you can see that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You've seen that on custom vans before, yeah, like yeah, crazy, totally. you know, crazy window shapes and things like that. Uh-huh. So, um, overhead clocks and third row seating and, uh, you know, tinted windows, fender flares, stuff like that. So, um, they have a lot of different models too. They had the family cruiser or you could buy just the cruiser. Uh-huh. Uh, they also had the street machine and the off-road vehicle. And then, of course, there's another company that gets in on this game too called the Van American, uh, company out of Goshen, Indiana. Now, the first one, isn't uh, the Midas was, Midas Van Conversion Company was in Elkhart, Indiana. Isn't that weird? Well, you know, you think it's weird, but then, 
Here's a point that we didn't mention early on. We should have. What's that? All these international scouts were built in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Oh, that's yeah, where, that's where the factory was. We should have mentioned that. Yeah, earlier. well, I mean, you know, we've been up in we've been up in the Midwest. You know, we yeah, were talking we about Chicago, Wisconsin, and uh-huh. Chicago in that area. But uh, but the international uh, scouts were built in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and so it makes sense that they would go to van manufacturers in uh-huh. Elkhart and in Goshen uh, to complete these conversions. Now, I guess they did a similar type thing. Uh, with the Van American vehicles, you know, it's similar to the, I guess, to compete with the Midas Right, versions. but they're, they're way, they were way less prolific. Yes, yeah, they're, and they're really, really rare today. So if you can find one of those, uh, you know, outside of the, uh, the Shawnee version, I guess, uh-huh. uh, these were also a rare option. Hold on to it. Yes. Keep uh, it, or rare, keep it, uh, safe. Special package, I should say, not option. So while we're talking about specials, uh, where more appropriate for us to go, my friend, than to one of the, rarest models produced by IH. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh, great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The 1980 Special Limited Edition RS Scout. Only available on The Traveler. Only in Tahitian Red. (laughs) Yeah. So this one is more, uh, I don't know, is it, is it the most rare? I don't know the production it's, numbers on well, this. It's one of. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. One but I, I don't think anything is going to ever be, 
I think that the rarest would be the Shawnee Scout. I think so. I mean, there are only three. Yeah, well, there's only three, unless unless they only made two of these. I'm not sure. I don't have production numbers, <laughs> but but these this one had things like polycast wheels with uh, you said Tahitian red metallic accent. Uh-huh. Uh, that was the paint color for the body, by the way. Yeah. Um, it had plush velour russet interiors. You can imagine what that was like, right? Right. Um, <laughs> oh, including the headliner and visors that were also done in that velour. Uh-huh. Um, special pinstriping, wood grain trim instrument panel, and shift console. That sounds kind of nice. That does. Yeah, it's classy. Like, yeah, it's classy, like a van. Um, <laughs> chrome bumpers, tinted glass, had a lot of other things going with it. And then while we're in 1980, and the last year, I guess, we should talk about the two other special editions or special packages that Ooh. were offered. And that was the 844 and the 434 Gold Star models. Right. So they had the standard equipment, but they also had a 345 V8, which was nice. Yep. Heavy, uh, heavy duty clutch. Heavy duty. And, uh, the, you know, AM radio, rear seat, uh. AM radio? You could get an AM radio on that thing? Welcome to the future, my friend. <laughs> well, it was, well, it was 1980, right? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it wasn't standard to even put FM at that point, and cassette wasn't really big by then. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just gaining ground. Uh, yeah. So it, it's funny when you look at that, like it was a big deal that they put an AM radio in. Sorry, I derailed you. Go no, ahead. it is. A, I think it is a big deal. Yeah. I, I don't – we take so many things for granted. I know I'm going to sound like an old person when I say this, but every time uh, every, every time that I'm just stuck in traffic listening to the radio, I end up staring at it like this piece of alien technology. Radio <laughs> is amazing. It is pretty amazing, yeah. Um So I, I'm still like back in the 1980s going, radio is amazing. Uh <laughs> And you know, maybe an insight to your ride home. <laughs> maybe I'm being an anachronistic person, <laughs> but anyhow, th- it didn't just have the radio. If that was the big thing, they would have called it the radio model. Yeah, that's right, the AM model, the, right. uh, the Scout AM. So, no, they didn't. They didn't yeah. call it that. This is a, these are these special packages, and uh, they have like thing, of course things like side appliques mm-hmm. and paint on the lower body, which black wasn't carpet. around. Oh, black. Okay, black carpet. Yeah, big deal, right? Um, right. But they also had um, different rear axle ratios and things like that too. Right. right? I mean, yeah. it wasn't it wasn't all on the surface stuff. Right. Which I got to be honest with you, man. I am glad because it irritates me sometimes. Now, I don't know why it gets on my nerves so much when there is a custom package that comes out and it's entirely cosmetic. Yeah, there's it a bugs lot. Me. There's a lot of that. I on. know, I know. I should be I should just chill out and be cool about it. <laughs> but it bothers me. You know, it is it's pretty rare when uh, when a when a special edition package comes out and it it means like something completely different. Like you get a different engine, you get a different suspension. Right, you get um, a substantive difference instead of a special color of paint. Well, you're going to pay for that uh, through the nose too. Sure, I mean, it's going to be yeah. a lot more money. So maybe that's part of it too, you know, like I can get this version for that, but you know, if I pay, pay another 11 grand, I can get this version. Um that has to pay a play into the uh, you know the decision to go through with that product, right? And I and I get it, and I, I do admit that I like the spirit of '76 mm-hmm. and the Patriot. I, I think I think they're cool. Um, I, I just you know I gotta again, as I said, I need to just be cool with people putting out special packages, even though they in no way change the performance of the vehicle. Well, you t- you're trying to tell me that red stitching on the seats and the steering wheel doesn't change the performance of a vehicle? <laughs> Are you trying to tell me that? Uh, you know, we, we can fight right now. We can fight right now. We can. Noel, we're going to go outside and fight. <laughs> oh, no. Okay. No, we're kidding. We're kidding. He says it's no, not a good idea. <laughs> no, we're good. Get out of the studio because there's expensive <laughs> stuff in there. Boy, uh, refri- uh, Noel Refrigerator Brown what, had, a, had a look of surprise. <laughs> He's like a bouncer in there. He's the cooler. All right. So, you know, oh, the cooler. Okay. There we go. Well, we're back to it because I promised that we would talk about this. And mm. I, 
I I don't know. This is one of the more, more interesting angles of this whole thing. And I know it's not as cool as, you know, talking about the vehicles themselves, because uh-huh. those are really fascinating. And you know what? There's a whole history with the light trucks that we probably could cover in its own podcast still. That's we did, true. We really just grazed over that from the 1907 to what, 1975, I think, mm-hmm. with the light pickups. Oh, wait. Uh, before um, we get into the appliance thing, though. Yeah, sure. Uh, I want to give listeners some background. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your first episode of Car Stuff. Thanks so much for dropping by. Uh, you are about to hear what I hope is a solution to a problem that has uh, bewildered my uh, my co-host and I for six years. Yeah, six or seven. Six I think. or seven years. As long as we've been talking about six it. Six or seven years. We've been trying to figure out, and our, our longtime listeners, you guys know this as well. We've been trying to figure out. Why there is a strange and surprisingly common relationship between vehicles and small appliances. Yeah, and it seems like they, they it's a common link. Yeah. It seems like there's so many automotive manufacturers that also create things like, you know, mixers or toasters. refrigerators yeah. or, yeah, toasters and things like that. It's so strange, isn't it? It's, it's weird. It's really weird. So I think I may have the answer here and, and, this is the best version of this that I've found so far to date anyways, but at least the best explanation. So International Harvester, I, oh, here's a little bit of trivia that you may not know, Ben. This kind of led me to this whole thing. On the, the series Friends, I never watched Friends. Okay. On the series Friends, in, and I, I, I don't even know who these characters are, but there's a character called Chandler and Monica. Okay. See how out of touch I am? I don't know who they are. They had an apartment, I guess, and in the background, in those apartment scenes, you'll mm-hmm. see a refrigerator. Mm-hmm. The refrigerator is an International Harvester refrigerator, which is relatively rare because they only made them for a very short amount of time. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll tell you about that in just a minute. But I think that's just kind of like a little bit of pop culture mixed into it. And that kind yeah. of led me to this whole thing because International Harvester also made home appliances. And, of course, they're best known for their farm equipment, you know, stuff like that, you know, the agricultural stuff. Right. And, and then later – uh, you know, the light trucks and then the, the scout models and, you know, the off-road vehicles and all that. But um, it was a uh, it was a, a household name, really, and on farms all across America. Well, really all around the world, as we said, for a long, long time prior to, uh, you know, them building automobiles at all. Mm-hmm. So it was, a, it was a common thing for International Harvester to be known among farmers. And then they thought, well, how are we going to get ourselves out of the fields and into the into the home? Yeah. And yeah. it's a weird thought, isn't it? But how are we going to get uh, those farmers' wives to know about this as well? And I don't mean to sound sexist at all, but this right. is exactly who they were targeting with this. They were targeting the farmer farmers' wives with this, knowing that the farmers would say, that's a quality product. I want it. I want to. Uh, I'll. I'll support that purchase or whatever. Yeah. Okay. Again, trying not to sound sexist, but I'm going to do my best. <laughs> so, International Harvester develops along the way a refrigeration equipment uh, um, uh, division, I guess. Yeah. And they built things like refrigerators, air conditioners, freezers. You know, like walk-in freezers, big meat freezers, and things right. like that for. Um, uh, you know, for let's say you have, well, yeah, I mean, you're on your farm, you're creating your own food, and you're canning stuff, and you know all that. So, so um, maybe that's a bad example. Canning stuff you put in the cellar, but um, <laughs> they've got their own meat or whatever. So, so along the way, and around the same time, you know, we're talking like uh, just prior to World War II, maybe mm-hmm. right around that era. Yeah. Um, other auto manufacturers teamed up with other companies that also had refrigeration units. So Ford teamed up with Philco. Chrysler had this division called AirTemp. General Motors had Frigidaire. The Nash Kelvinator Corporation, and then later American Motors, had uh, Kelvinator. 
Studebaker had the Franklin Appliance Company, and Crosley had its own Crosley-named or Crosley-branded refrigeration unit. So these refrigeration divisions are key to this whole thing. If they didn't build build refrigerators or or freezers or air conditioners Uh or whatever, that wouldn't happen. And and when you think about it, okay, the refrigeration unit is important because they use a smaller version of that in their cars when they make um, air conditioning systems. Yeah, so that so that's important. So they said, well, you know, why not merge these two? We can make money, you know, doing all kinds of stuff like Mm -hmm. that, that that sort of matches up like that. Well, the International Appliance International Harvester Appliance Division uh, was originally developed to manufacture these commercial-grade items to farmers, and a lot of these farmers had just then received electricity on the farms that they worked on. So so imagine this, Ben. It's like World War II, and this this happened on my grandfather's farm. I talked to him about this several times in the past. Uh-huh. They didn't get... He, he lived in Monticello, Indiana, uh, right near um, um, Indiana Beach, on Lake... Uh, I think it was Lake Schaefer. And... They had this kind of out-of-the-way farmhouse. It was out in the middle of nowhere, big family. But they didn't get uh, electricity until after World War II. Can you imagine? That's crazy. <laughs> they lived on that farm for – well, he lived there for like 30 years. He came back after the war, went back to the farm, and that's when they got electricity. So um, all these farmers are just now getting you know, electrified, I guess, uh-huh. and uh, you know, all across the United States. And, of course, they wanted things like milk coolers and these walk-in freezers you know, mm-hmm. for the produce and meat that we just talked about. Um, and International Harvester, as I said before, they were trying to kind of court the farmers' wives in a way that, you know, that made it uh, attractive to them. This, this mm-hmm. appliance would be attractive to them. So they had, and this is very clever, Ben, this leads to another whole discussion here, but they had a, a spokeswoman for these products, and her name was Irma Harding. Now, Irma Harding was not real. What? Yeah, not real. It's not okay. a real person. Now, there's, and, and, there's versions of this. I mean, I'll, I'll get to it. I'll explain it in a way that'll make sense. But it's actually Irma Harding is a factory trademark for the international brand. It's not really a person. It's sort of like like Betty Crocker was. Betty Crocker is not a real person. Betty Crocker is an is an idea. I think. I see. And and there there are people that played Betty Crocker, and there's people that played Irma Harding, like the Marlboro Man. Now, see Irma Harding. That's very clever. I H. You know, Irma Harding. Uh-huh. And yeah, exactly. Like the Marlboro Man. There were a lot of people that played the Marlboro Man, but the Marlboro Man is more of an idea to sell a product. Right. And that's exactly what Irma Harding was for International Harvester. It all makes sense. So they had this huge uh, campaign where they had uh, lots of really nice print ads, and you can find some of these, and they're really, they're, they're very well done, but they have the refrigerator front and center. Yeah. And then they have ways that this uh, Irma Harding character, who is drawn on these, uh, you know, on these advertisements, a way to customize these these uh, appliances for your kitchen so you can add fabric to the front of the thing you can add um you know handles that have different colors they might have 10 different colors that uh-huh. can coordinate with other things in your kitchen so they're really playing into this uh and they call it uh feminine uh, i'm trying to get this name right it's, it's right. like it's like feminine engineering but it's uh feminineering that's it feminineering that's it yeah feminineering so this is one of the first examples of feminineering products Weird. and this is so strange. Now, the, the the person that created this. Now, Irma. Oh, wait, I'm I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here. Maybe right. I need to, to say this. This is this. These were two women within the company headquarters that were kind of um, the inspiration for this character, this Irma Harding character. Uh, one's name was Zelma Purchase, and the other one's name was Olive White. But they aren't the ones that are portrayed there. That's kind of like their persona, but. The image or the face that was used for the, um, you know, for the, the artist prints for these ads was a model named Anne Farr, spelled P-F-A-R-R. And uh-huh. the artist, his name is, um, Hayden Sunblom. 
And Hayden Sundblom is somebody that you all know, but you don't really know who he is. I mean, he's he's the guy that is also responsible for Aunt Jemima, that character. Uh-huh. He's also responsible for the Coca-Cola Santa Claus character. He's also responsible for the Quaker Oats Man and lots and lots of pinup models. He did a lot of pinup designs. Um, so, I don't know. And he also did, um, oh, the Sprite Boy. I don't know if you've ever seen the Sprite Boy for Coca-Cola. It's another yeah, ad, I remember ad that campaign. Guy. Yeah. So, it's kind of interesting. He's a, uh, he was a Finnish illustrator, uh, you know, out of Finland. And, um, it's just, it's fascinating to me how they took this, uh, this idea that we're going to have, uh, this Irma Harding, you know, with the IH initials uh-huh. that it's going to, they're going to sell our international harvester freezers or, or refrigerators to, yeah. to the farmer's wives. And this era, I mean, it played right into the era perfect with the Coca-Cola Santa Claus character and the uh-huh. Betty Crocker character and all that stuff has a really interesting, um, interlaced history to it. I mean, they, they all uh, relate in some way or another to each other. It's really, it's just a fascinating time in history. And it is weird. It does make sense from a manufacturing standpoint. Uh, but this femineering move, which is, which is really interesting. I want to see what our coworkers, Kristen and Caroline think of it yeah. on stuff. Mom never told you. Um, when, when you look at it, what, what a status symbol it must have been to have this refrigerator. And the marketing was so well done because there are recipes that require a, frig- a refrigerator. Yeah, right? sure. And people today seek out these international harvester uh, refrigerators. It's a, uh, mm-hmm. it's just like anything else. And can I, I know we're running late, but can I take just one moment to mention something that I don't know if I ever have? Oh, please. When I first moved here to Atlanta, I know that people seek out these these uh, these appliances the way that some people seek out classic automobiles. And That's I, true. I ran across one of these cats when I first moved here to Atlanta. I was selling a washer and dryer set that looked like it came from the 1950s. I don't even remember when it was, <laughs> but it, they were in perfect shape, perfect okay. condition. I've got yeah. photos of them uh, that I can I can show you later, but they're classic 1950 type design, right? Uh-huh. I put them online on Craigslist or something like that. The guy that called me was very excited about coming out to see them, right? I had lots of photos, and he came out, and he was super jacked about seeing these these uh, these things, right? So not only did I show him this, and he was very excited. He wanted them immediately as soon as he saw them. He knew exactly what he wanted. He also wanted to see the washer and dryer that I was replacing those with, and I showed it to him. You know, I thought, well, okay, I'll show him. Yeah. And this guy was so excited. He's like, oh, my God, aren't basket washers so cool? I love this. Thing. You know, he's like, tell me about these features in this thing. And he, he was he was talking with the enthusiasm of somebody that was there to, uh, you know, look at a Look at a classic vehicle. Yeah, that's the only thing I can compare it to, because that's the way, you know, you and I think, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you were to go into someone's garage and then you were to see next to it something also exciting, you would probably talk about that a little bit. But his enthusiasm, his excitement for appliances in particular, washers and dryers. He he had this encyclopedic knowledge of these things. It was unbelievable. He gave me so many little facts and tidbits about the the set that we were looking at right then, the one I was selling him. Yeah, I, I almost wanted to keep them by the time he had left. You know, it was I, contagious. Well, yeah. I helped him carry them out, and we were very careful about it. And he uh, apparently he had many of these in storage that he was just hanging on to. I don't know what he would do with them, but uh, it was just a really interesting character. And so I know that appliances <laughs> like this, like the International Harvester refrigerators and you know, other other devices that you know you'd find around the farm, I suppose, or other appliances, are are just you know highly sought after collectors' items at this point, and some people are just, uh, just hungry to get these things in their collection. Hey, maybe this guy's like a 
like a Scrooge McDuck or something. Instead of a vault of gold coins, he just has a bunch of basket washers. Well, you know, who knows? In, in <laughs> 20 years from now or something, maybe uh, these things might be worth quite a bit of money. I don't, I don't That's know. That's true. Maybe they are now. Maybe I was taken, you know, because uh, he sure made them sound like they were, uh, you know, <laughs> worth their weight in gold, really. Well, I, if he's saying that, then maybe you weren't being swindled. Because uh, if he was really <laughs> trying to swindle you, he would be like, uh, yeah, he'd have a bit more of a poker face. I think it was a fair deal. A fair was deal a fair was, deal. was, was struck in the end. But uh, honestly, you know, this whole international thing, there's, again, I would love to talk about international, uh, just their, just their the light, light trucks. pickup trucks. Yeah, yeah. From 1907 through, uh, the seventies. Fascinating history that the company, I, I hope we didn't get too long, uh, about the, uh, about the tractors, but I think it was necessary to build a, um, a case for, uh, just how long this company's been around and, and the the rich history that they have and and why they're such an important name. They and make still, so much stuff. Yeah, lots of stuff. They, oh, we didn't even talk about rifles. We talked. No. We didn't talk about other military aspects. There's all no, kinds of things. We didn't. T- yeah, we we didn't talk about the. Um, we didn't talk about some of my favorite vehicles, like the Travel All, which is just a, a great weird looking thing. You tried. I might have uh, I might have steered us the wrong way. I sorry no, no, about no, that. No, we had we we had to do it because we could just spend um do you know that ultimately I have this weird dream of living in a car and we got this great letter from Rudy Smith, a uh, longtime friend of the show, and Rudy rightfully pointed out, you know, Ben, you might just like the idea of living in a car because the RV lifestyle, based on what you're saying, is not yeah. what you want. Yeah, the reality is far different. So I recognize that I'm somewhat romanticizing this or, or being naive about it. So we don't need to enable uh, my uh, enable my weird dreams of running away and living in a travel all yeah. or a Unimog or whatever. You know, but but man, they're fascinating. He, Please Google them. You know, Rudy. I think he he mentioned in that note that he and his family often uh, would would travel in a bus. I believe a converted bus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and he had a uh, a, a terrible. Uh, just, terrible yeah, terrible, of it. Well, a terrible disdain for <laughs> campgrounds. Yes, uh, and the type of people yeah. you meet there. Well, some, I guess, not all, not all. So, um, anyways, we'll we'll dive into that maybe in another episode. But sure. Pearson, thank you so much for sending this in, and I I really truly apologize for it taking so long for us to get back to it. But man, what a history! This is a this is another really good one, and it doesn't have you know like the uh, the sordid past like U uh-huh. Haul or. Uh, you know, the William Shakespeare company, you know, the, the right. fishing company or the Dale car. Yeah. The Dale or anything like that. But, uh, but it, it but it is a fascinating past and, and I hope we've even touched on just some of it. There's way more there than we were able to get to. Oh, and Irma Harding was brought back in 2014. Really? I didn't mm-hmm. know that as a branding on some, I, I saw the design brought back for, uh, some plates. Or something like that. Oh, that's cool. That. Yeah. So, All right. So maybe like some Franklin mint plates or something. Or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll check it out. We'll be on the case. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this show. On uh, the case, I just got it. Oh, <laughs> I didn't even mean that. On one. the JI case. On the JI case. There we go, Scott. And we'll continue to provide updates as more information or even just strange historical tidbits about uh, J.I. Case and company and International Harvester uh, come out or as we discover them during our, our weird Internet rabbit holes. Yes, Navistar or whatever they're called now. Right, yeah, whatever their name is this week <laughs> or this year. <laughs> it seems like it. So in the meantime, if you want to check out some of the other stuff we referenced in this podcast, uh, go back to our older catalog. We have a bunch of stuff. We're closer to a thousand now. Uh, well, we're we're zeroing we're in five hundred. Yeah, like we're at seven hundred something. I think we're getting close to eight hundred. 
Ah, well, maybe. I don't know. It, it seems like it's growing a little slower at this point because we're only once a week now. Right. Yeah. But, uh, so it's growing a little bit slower, but we're way up there. I mean, it's so many that, uh, you know, we have listeners that write in and say, I've only got 343 more to go, but I'd like to comment on this uh, this high-speed stuff episode about uh, whatever it was. We should, you know what, we should do some sort of celebratory thing for uh, you ladies and gentlemen who listen to all of the episodes. So I'll be honest, in our early days, there were a couple stinkers. They're yeah. my fault, but there are a couple yeah, stinkers. Uh, no, don't take all the blame. It's uh, they're, they're tough to listen to, but we were learning the crap. <laughs> they're tough to listen to. Not that we're no, pros now, right? Well, here's the tip. All right, so you can listen to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, what have you. But iTunes, as you have said before, Scott, will only let you listen to the first 300 or so. Yeah, the, uh, the most recent 300. The most recent 300. If you want to listen to all of them, you can go to our website, carstuffshow.com, and that's where you can see every single episode that we've ever done, including, of course, the ones we're mentioning these tidbits. Uh, you can see some awesome stuff that Scott is posting on Facebook. Uh, you can check out the documentary for Vannon, which I do recommend, and thanks again, Ryan, for sending that on our Twitter. We are CarStuffHSW at both of those. And if you, like Pearson, have an idea for an upcoming topic, we may not respond on time, but we do read everything. Well, I hope we won't make you wait three years, but uh, <laughs> but if you do want to contact us, you can, you can reach us at CarStuff at HowStuffWorks.com. More on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. So, should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander. Or we could do something in between like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So Toyota is electrified diversified? Yep, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's beyond zero vision for the future. Exactly how much coffee have you had this morning? Learn more about our beyond zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyond zero. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. This episode brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Director Wes Ball breathes new life into the epic franchise. As a ruthless king attempts to build his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape begins a journey to fight for a future for apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and theaters everywhere. Get tickets now.